0: Welcome, I especially want to welcome you if it's your first time here at Redeemer. Thank you for coming, joining us today. Uh, we, we pray, we hope that you'd find here a home and a family and a community to be a part of and that you'll come back and, and continue to, to join us in the coming weeks. Um, church, it's Resurrection Sunday. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. That's your part, right? Uh, we gather to celebrate this Sunday every Sunday. Every Sunday we gather to celebrate the reality, the truth, that on Friday, Jesus was dead. He, he, he died a brutal death in our place for our sins. He was buried, but on Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, he walked out of the tomb and Jesus is alive. Right? Uh, if you've been with us in the past few uh, weeks or months, as you probably could count at this point, we've been making a, a long, slow journey through the Gospel of Mark. Um, And and this Sunday, if you've been around, it's going to feel a little bit like a Quentin Tarantino movie. We're going to jump to the end, right out of the middle, and then we'll come back to the middle next week. So uh, we're going to be in uh, Mark 16. The, The resurrection is the greatest reversal the world has ever seen. Jesus was dead on Friday, but on Sunday he is risen, he is alive. And the resurrection is meant to bring about a complete transformation, a complete and total reversal in each of us. Uh, The resurrection is meant to confront our doubts with truth to change our minds. The the resurrection is meant to confront our sin and and our our attitudes of earning and, and seeking to get what we think we deserve with radical grace to change our hearts. And the resurrection is meant to confront our circumstances, the difficulty of life that we all face with a hope that will change the entire course and trajectory of our lives that the resurrection is meant to bring about a complete and total transformation in each of us. That's what we're going to see today in our, our text, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. It's on page 853 in those Bibles there on your row. And I invite you to stand together for the reading of God's Word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene... You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this day, uh, this particular Sunday where we remember uh, the glorious good news of the resurrection, that Jesus died on Friday, but he did not stay dead. Death could not hold him down, but he walked out of the tomb alive, victorious, defeating once and for all Satan, sin, and death in his sacrifice and his resurrection. Lord, we, we pray that as we Fix our eyes on that empty tomb this morning, that it would change our minds, that it would change our hearts, that it would transform our entire lives to live for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may have a seat. Mark, Mark shows us in these, these eight short verses uh, three ways that the resurrection is, is, is meant to impact and transform us. He shows us that the resurrection is meant to change our minds. Uh, It's it's meant to change your heart. And it's meant to change the entire trajectory of your life. First, Mark is making it clear that the resurrection is meant to change your mind. Verse 6, the angel, it's an angel. It says a young man, but the language here is clearly, Mark is getting to the point. This is an angel of the Lord who has come, right? The angel tells the women, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. But he is not here. He has risen. See the place where they laid him. In other words, see where he ought to be? You remember how he died? This is where he should be, but he's not there anymore. He's not there. This is a challenge for our minds. This is a challenge for our doubts. This is a confrontation of our doubts. And Mark, in his gospel, he's okay with doubt, right? Uh, The Bible is okay with doubt. In fact, it anticipates our doubts. It invites us to wrestle with those, with those doubts. That's what Mark is doing here. He understands that the resurrection is a really hard thing to believe, right? That someone could be dead and then walk out of their grave. That's a hard thing to believe and accept. And my guess is that even today, there are likely those of you here in this room who, who, for whom that is a hard thing to believe, to accept. That a man was dead on Friday, and he is risen and alive on Sunday, right? Some of you might be like, sure, I I like Jesus. He sounds like a great teacher, a great leader, but really coming back to life after being dead, that's a stretch, right? That's hard to accept. And I want to tell you, if that's you, one, I'm glad you're here, and and we would invite you to come with your doubts and, and journey with us in that. But I want to invite you today to doubt those doubts, to be willing to doubt your doubts, Think about this, in the decades before and after the life and death of Jesus Christ, there were, were dozens of messianic movements in Israel. Dozens of them. In almost every case, the messianic leader was killed. And every other movement after the death of that leader completely collapsed. Everyone went home and they quit because the leader was dead. It was over. But not this one. Of all the movements, only one movement did not collapse after the death of its leader. And not only did Christianity not collapse, it exploded. In about 200 years, it had taken over the entire Roman Empire. And today is by far the most widespread and largest religious faith in the world. How is that? How is that? What makes Jesus different? Well, the Bible tells us what makes it different is that on Friday, Jesus died. He suffered and died a brutal death for our sins in our place. But then on Sunday... He walked out of the grave alive, risen, resurrected, and he appeared to his followers, numbers of them at a time. That's kind of a big deal, right? That, that's what changes everything. That's why the followers of Jesus did not quit and go home. That's why Christianity exploded. But you may be thinking, well, sure, the Bible says that's what happened, but we don't really know how or why Christianity exploded because these, these writings, these gospel accounts like Mark's were written years and years later uh, after whatever had happened, happened. They're, they're legends. They're not history. Therefore, we don't really know what happened. Well, Mark challenges that right here. He challenges your thinking. He challenges your doubts that the resurrection of Jesus Christ might change your mind. If you look back at the end of chapter 15 in, in the scriptures here in, in Mark's gospel, verses 40 and 47, and then here again at the very first verse of Mark 16, Mark gives the names of these, these women who, who saw all of this repeatedly, three different times, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. That's three times in the span of eight verses. Right, what, what's going on here? Is Mark like the, uh, the department head of the Department of Redundancy Department? Um, <laughs> Right? Why would he do that? Why would why he keep repeating these names? Well, biblical scholar Richard bockham says this is Mark's way of saying that this is not some legend. But this is a historical account. Ancient historians put more stock in the oral testimony of still living eyewitnesses. The, these names are citations. Right? They, they'd be footnotes in our research pe- paper. Right? These women are still alive at the time that Mark is writing. And he's mentioning their names repeatedly as a way to say, hey, you want to check this? Go talk to them. Go ask them what they saw. They're still alive. They can confirm everything, everything that I've said to you. This is not how you write legend, right? If you're making up a legend, that's not how you do it. This is history. This is how you cite your sources, writing at a historical account of actual events. But there's even more support that the resurrection is an actual fact. In all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are told that it is women followers of Christ who, who are the first witnesses to the resurrection. Right? This is another pointer to the factual nature uh, of the resurrection. Mark and the us, other gospel writers were, were writing in a culture where the testimony of women was not admissible in the court of law. Right? Jewish law pronounced that women were ineligible as witnesses in this culture. The fact that the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus were women does no favors for the early church. It's not a helpful thing that those are the very first witnesses. If you're making up a legend, this is not the way you go about it. This is not the way you go about it. You don't have the least credible witnesses in that culture as your first witnesses. No, you would pick the most credible witness. Right, A celebrity, maybe. You know, someone whose testimony would carry the most weight and significance with the people you're trying to convince. There's no way you would have your first witnesses be people whose testimony would immediately be disregarded. Unless it were true. Unless that's exactly how it happened. Look at the detail Mark writes with. Right? Look at the detail that he, he, he uses. Right? They see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. There's detail here. He, he is challenging you. He's challenging you. He's saying this is a historical document, and this really happened. And he's making a really strong case. But maybe you're thinking, uh, these ancient people, they were much more open to kind of miraculous events like a resurrection, much more predisposed to believe in a resurrection than, than people in our culture. I mean, we know... Miracles don't happen like this anymore. People aren't resurrected like this. This doesn't happen, right? And again, Mark challenges those doubts. As we read through Mark's gospel, you will find at least three different points, uh, three different occasions where Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to die, and on the third day, he was going to be raised from the dead, right? Jesus does this in Mark chapter 8. He does it in Mark chapter 9. He does it again in Mark chapter 10. Now, Mark of the gospel writers is always credited with with his great economy of words, much like my uh, amount of time I spend preaching a sermon, Um, right? Uh, That's a joke if you're new. Um, (laughs) Buckle up, Um, right? In comparison to the other gospel accounts, his his are shorter, they're briefer, they're they're more to the point, uh, right? They just get right to the point, Uh, but so therefore, we might even conclude that if Mark is saying that Jesus said this three times, that he actually said it a whole lot more. Right? He was saying it again and again and again. I will die, but I will be raised on the third day. Right? I'm going to die, but I will rise on the third day. Are you listening? Did you catch that, disciples? I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise on the third day. And given that repetition, is it not a little shocking that here on the third day, where are His disciples? Where are the 12? Where are the 12 that he spent so much time pouring into them? If they were simply more inclined to believe in a resurrection and they heard Jesus saying over and over again that this is what's going to happen, where are they? They're not at the tomb waiting to greet Jesus. They're not there. There's only three women who are there at the tomb on that third day. Three women who, at the end of the Sabbath night, Saturday night, the night before when the Sabbath ended, Went and spent a lot of money on these spices, these, these, these uh, expensive spices and perfumes with which you would anoint a dead body, right? Nobody expected a resurrection. No one expected Jesus to be alive on the third day. No one. And again, if you're making up a legend and you have Jesus repeatedly referring to his resurrection, why would you not have at least one of the 12, right, kind of sitting around with the other guys saying, hey, it's the third day. Shouldn't we go check that out? Maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's alive. But nobody says anything like that because none of them expected it. No one. It never occurred to them. The angel has to remind them through the, the women in verse 7, you will see him just as he told you. If you're making this up, this is not how you do it. Here's the point. The resurrection is, was just as unbelievable, just as impossible for these first disciples to believe as it is for many of us to believe. They just had different reasons in that culture maybe than what we have. You know, from the Greeks, resurrection just was not part of the worldview because salvation was a, a, a rescue of being redeemed from the flesh. Like the soul being re, separated from the flesh, right? Uh, a liberation of the soul from the body. There was no way that a physical resurrection could be part of salvation in their mind. For the Jews, some of them believed in a future kind of resurrection in general where the entire world would be renewed together. But they had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. The people in Jesus' day were not predisposed to believe in resurrection any more than we are. It was impossible for them to believe. Yet they believed. Why? Why? Because they examined the evidence, and they let the evidence challenge their worldview. Right? They let the evidence confront their doubts. Mark says, here's the evidence, right? Here's three witnesses. Go talk to them. The Apostle Paul does the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, He writes in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' little brother, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Again, Paul saying, here are the witnesses. Right? He even makes the point, 500 people at one time. Most of those people are still alive. You got questions? Go talk to them. Ask them what they saw. And look at how the resurrection transformed the lives of these people. James, Jesus' own brother, who we read about in Mark 3, like his family does not believe that he is the Savior of the world. They're not on board with that. In fact, they're coming, trying to rescue him from getting himself killed because they think he's out of his mind. But yet, James, the little brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus as his big brother, becomes a believer that his brother is the Lord and Savior, that he is the Son of God, and he's a leader in the church. As we read in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was Saul of Tarsus trying to destroy the church, trying to kill Christians. He sees the resurrected Lord and he becomes the greatest missionary to ever live. You have to come up with some sort of explanation for how this little band of believers exploded and changed the world the way that Christianity has. You may have to, you have to come up with some explanation of why so many of these people would be martyred, would be murdered and, and brutally killed for their faith and would go to their death saying, he's alive, he is risen. I will not recant. I will not say that that's not true. You, you, here's the thing. Just because it seems beyond your grasp of belief, don't dismiss it just because you think it's impossible. That would be very intellectually lazy of you right? Consider the evidence. Let it challenge your thinking and your doubts. The resurrection is meant to change your mind. Mark also shows us that the resurrection is meant to change your heart. Just as he gives this word of challenge to change your mind, he also gives a word of grace to change your heart. Look at what the angel says to the women in verse 7. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. This is a word of grace. And to understand why this is a word of grace, you need to understand what Jesus is not saying to his disciples right here. Right? What he's not saying. He does not say, tell that bunch of backstabbing cowards right? that I'm, I'm coming. And if they can really get down on their hands and knees and beg hard enough, maybe, maybe I will consider reinstating them. Now, Jesus would have every right to have said that. He would have every right to say that. That's not what he said. He'd have every right because think about what the disciples had done. Right? They ran for the hills. In, his, in Jesus' moment of greatest need, the disciples scatter. They're like, I'm getting out of here. I don't want to be dead too. Right? They're trying to save their own, their own skin. They deny him. Jesus would have been justified to say something like that. He's perfectly righteous. He's dying the death that they deserve, and they desert him. After all, this is, that's what we would say, right? That's how we would respond to someone when they stab us in the back, right? You backstabbing jerk, right? If you, if you make me feel your apology enough, maybe I'll consider being your friend again. That's how we respond. But Jesus' message to his disciples through the angel is this. I will see you. Right? I'm going ahead of you. I will wait for you there. I want you back. I want you back. His message is, I love you, and I forgive you, and I've made it possible for you to repent. Right? This is a word of grace. He's, he's forgiving them before they have repented, before they've owned their sin and deserting him. He's forgiving them so that they can repent and be restored. But there's an even bigger word of grace in this verse. It's one word, one, one name, actually, right? Peter, Peter. Why does, he, why does the angel single out Peter? Why would he do that? Tell the disciples and Peter. Wasn't Peter one of the disciples? Why is it the disciples and Peter? Well, imagine if, if it was, if the message was simply like, go tell the disciples that, that I want to see them, I'm going to meet them in Galilee. That's the message that gets relayed to this group of disciples, Peter included. What would Peter have thought? Well, Peter would have probably thought, well, you guys better go on ahead, right? You guys better go on ahead and see what he has to say to you, because that obviously does not include me. Not after what I've done. Right? Do you remember what Peter did? Right? His abandonment of Jesus was far worse, far greater than, than any of the other disciples. Three times Peter denied that he knew Jesus. So fearful, so self-absorbed, so self-concerned, that he even lied to a little girl about knowing Christ. But what Jesus says is, I have some big plans for my disciples. And that means you too, Peter. You big jerk. Right? That's what, he, that's what he's saying. What a word of grace, right? Think about the reversal in Peter's life. The reversal in his life. This, this man who's afraid to tell a little girl that he's one of Jesus' disciples. Who then... And the book of Acts is is preaching and saying, no, you're not going to shut me up. You can kill me, but I'm going to still preach that he is risen, that he is Lord, that he is our only hope of salvation. That's what happens in Peter's life, right? He ends up becoming the the leader of leaders among the disciples. Why? I mean, wasn't he the biggest screw up? Why would he become the, the leader? And this is just another example of the upside down kingdom of Jesus at work, The wonder of his gospel of grace. Because Peter's screw-up was the biggest, that means his repentance will be the deepest. And his grasp of grace will be the greatest. And that's what makes him qualified to be a leader in Christ's movement. And this makes no sense to us. This is not how the world does things. That's not how the world puts people in, in leadership. The world says, you get what you deserve. You get what you earn. But grace says, you get the opposite of what you deserve. Religion teaches us, right? God accepts you because of what you do based on your performance, right? Getting your your act together. You must earn his approval and acceptance through religious performance. So the the way to be right with God is to to be good, right? To go to church, to read your Bible, to pray more, right? You, You better shape up. You better put yourself back together. Get your act together or at least make it look like you have. But the gospel says you're saved by grace. Not by works. You're saved by grace. The gospel says salvation comes not through your own performance, but through Christ's performance on your behalf. He has lived the perfect sinless life that you never could. He has died the death that you deserve. The the, the death that you earned by your sins. And he suffered the wrath of God that was meant for you on the cross. And he paid your debt in full. But death could not hold him down. Right? There should be some amens there. Right? Death could not hold him down. Jesus rose on that first Easter Sunday victorious over sin and death that you might share in that victory. And the gospel teaches us that salvation comes not by cleaning yourself up, by pretending you have it all together, but instead salvation comes by admitting you are weak. By admitting that you're a mess. By admitting that you are desperately lost and you are, are without hope on your own. Confessing your sin, confessing your desperate need for rescue, and then clinging to the one who has won it for you—Jesus Christ, right? Your Savior, your Lord. Now, here's what's hard about the gospel, right? We we hate ad- admitting that we are wrong. Um, the Lord knows, my wife knows, my children know, and about everyone who's had like much of a conversation with me knows. I hate to admit that I'm wrong. I I do not like to be wrong. And when I am, I definitely don't want to admit that. Right? I don't think I'm alone in that kind of feeling either. We're we're constantly making excuses. We're constantly shifting blame. We're doing everything we can but repent. But own it. Do you know why? Because to admit that you're wrong, it feels like a death. It feels like you're dying, right? Because it, it is a death. It's a death to self to do that. But if you let it drive you deeper into the gospel, it can become for you a resurrection. It can become for you newness of life. Here's how. When you're able to let your, your failure, your sin, drive you deeper to own that, to see the reality of it, but also at the same time see that you are so much more infinitely loved, Wondrously, perfectly loved by Jesus Christ, that He would die for you at your very worst, not at your best. At your very worst, He went to the cross for you, and He didn't stay dead. He He was raised, victorious over the grave. As you see that, that transforms your heart to see at the same time the depth of your own sin, the reality of your own sin, but what's even more overwhelming, the amazing depth of the love. ...of Christ for you. That, that you cannot out His grace. You cannot out His love. It is greater. It is greater than whatever your sin is. And that transforms your heart. The more that you continue to own your failure and sin... ...and repent and turn to Jesus in, in faith... ...and receive His grace... ...the more you keep growing. The more you keep growing. The wonderful truth of the gospel is... ...is that the biggest repenters love the deepest. Right? Those who repent the deepest love the deepest. The biggest repenters become the best leaders. They become the best counselors, the best spouses, the best children, the best parents, the best neighbors, the best everything. By repenting, not by pretending to have it all together, but by owning how much you don't and how desperately you need rescue. That that is radical. It's a word of grace. And it comes at the resurrection because the resurrection means... Your sins are forgiven. That's what it means. Your sins are forgiven. When when a criminal is put in jail for a crime that he commits and and he completes his sentence in, in prison, when he fully satisfies that sentence so that the law has no more claim on him, he walks out free. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for your sins, it was an enormous penalty right? No small sentence. It was enormous. Eternal separation from God, eternal judgment and damnation. But he must have satisfied it fully. He must have satisfied satisfied it fully because on Easter Sunday, he walked out of the tomb free. As pastor and author Tim Keller says, the resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. Paid in full. Because the tomb is empty. God can come to you. No matter who you are. No matter what you've done. No matter what you've done. He can come to you with a word of grace that enables you to turn to him. In repentance and faith. And walk in newness of life. Together with Christ. The resurrection is a word of grace that's meant to change your heart. But lastly we see that the resurrection is meant to change your life. If you let it change your mind... If you let it change and transform your heart, you also find that there's a word of mission here to reshape the entire trajectory of your life. Two words in particular. In verse 6, the word alarmed. In verse 7, the word go. Put it together. It's essentially saying uh, this to us. Don't be alarmed and go tell people about the resurrection. Don't be alarmed. Go tell people about the resurrection. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid anymore, but go and live in and share with others the the hope that you have because of the resurrection. This is telling us that when you truly understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it gives you a real hope, a, a real freedom. It brings it into your life. And when the Bible talks about hope, it's not using the word hope like we use the word hope. Like, I hope it will stop snowing and the sun will come out. At least the sun's out today for a little bit, right? Um, And it'll warm up and it'll actually be spring for once, right? Uh, Or like, I hope this year, finally, the Kansas City Chiefs will win a Super Bowl, right? When we use the word hope like that, what we really mean is we hope these things would happen, but we know that they're never really going to happen. It's it's almost positive it's never going to happen, but we hope that it will, right? That's what we mean when we use the word hope, but that's not biblical hope. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible talks about hope like it's a done deal. Like it is certain hope. It it will absolutely happen kind of hope. Jesus declared from his cross, what did he say? It is finished. It is finished. Satan, sin, and death have been defeated. And Jesus says to us in the scriptures that he's returning again to renew and restore the entire earth, all things That we will be resurrected in a pattern after his own resurrection. A real, material, physical life with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. Right? Real life with Christ where there's no more sin. No more suffering. No more death. No more sickness. The Bible says this is a certain hope. A sure hope. A done deal kind of hope that will absolutely come to be. And that hope assures us that this life is not all that there is. It's not all that there is. It gives us a hope that all of our suffering and sadness will one day be undone. And that hope gives us real freedom. It brings with it freedom. Freedom from falling into the trap of thinking this is it, right? This is all we got. What we're dealing with right now, this is all that we will ever see. Freedom from thinking that our current circumstances will be our eternal circumstances. They will not. Good, bad, and different, glory is coming. We can share. It gives us freedom to share the hope that we have without fear of what others might think about us or what others might do to us. Think about it. You have a real, material, physical life with Jesus waiting for you when he returns. A life where there's no suffering, no sadness, no sickness, no death. What does it matter what someone thinks about you right now? Not that we should like, be jerks about it. That's not what I'm saying. Don't take it that way. But what does it matter what, what someone says to you, what they do to you? Right? What matters more is that they hear the gospel of grace. They be invited in to come in and, to, and share in that life with you. That's what matters more. The hope of the resurrection frees you from, from all the ultimate anxieties of, of life. Um, so that you can be brave, so that you can take risks for Christ and his glory. So you might be able to face the very worst things in your life with deep joy. Not like you're smiling and laughing, but a joy that Christ is victorious. He is risen. There is hope, unshakable hope in him. The resurrection not only gives us freedom from the world, it gives us freedom for the world. This is what I mean. The resurrection proves that God loves the world. It proves that God loves this world, that he loves it. it. It proves that his intention is to redeem this world, the physical as well as the spiritual. It proves that God hates disease, that he hates poverty, that he hates hunger, that he, he hates death. He hates it. And because we know that God hates those things, we can even now begin to join him. In working with him against those things, we can join Jesus in his mission of bringing a, a total and holistic redemption to this world, sharing the gospel of grace with our mouths to the people around us, but also at the same time meeting physical, practical needs, just like Jesus did, both together, a whole gospel. Growing in our redeemed relationship with God and in our redeemed relationships with one another in the church. The resurrection transforms us to live for the renewal of the world in every way. It's meant to bring about a total transformation in your life. A total transformation in your life. Not just so you have a place to come on Sundays. Right? It's meant to change your mind. It's meant to change your heart. It's meant to change the entire course of your life. That in every way you would live for Christ's glory now and forevermore. So what about you? That's the real question. What do you think? What do you believe? Right? Do you believe it happened? Or do you think the resurrection is just some nice, neat little symbol for the, for the church? Right? Can you imagine the first preachers of the gospel, the first preachers of the resurrection in the first century church going out and, and saying about Jesus, hey, let me tell you about the resurrection. Hey, it didn't really happen. It's just a nice, neat little symbol of good triumphing over evil, sort of like Harry Potter, right? Because the early church was really into Harry Potter. And how can you blame them? Um, It's a great story. Can you imagine them saying that, right? The resurrection is only but a symbol of good defeating evil, so go out there and be nice to each other. Right? Is that changed people's lives? Can you imagine the poor, marginalized, oppressed people of that day saying, this is the hope we need, right? This is what we've been looking for, right? Let, let us, you know, you know, this will help us get above this life of poverty and oppression that we've been living. Let's be nicer. Let, let, let's, let's be nicer to one another. Would that ever happen? No. Of course not. That's ridiculous, that would never happen. That would, that would never change anyone's life. Here's what the first preachers of the resurrection said. We saw him. We touched him. Right? He is risen. He is alive. And this proves that God's power and glory and grace have come to this broken world. And someday he's going to put everything right. Someday he's going to make all the sad things come untrue. The Jesus Storybook Bible says, "So put your hope in Jesus, receive His grace." That's what they said. If Jesus has really done it, if He has truly risen, it means everything. It means everything. It means that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that He is our perfect, true and perfect king. It means that Jesus truly did come and live the life you never could and die the death on the cross that you deserve for your sins. It means that trusting in Him, putting your, your life in His hands, putting your hope on Him, it means by doing that, He accomplished in His death and resurrection everything that you need to be made right with Him, to be brought into fellowship with Him, to be invited into this sure, true hope that He's coming again to renew and restore all things. It means to put your hope in him. It means you are ushered from eternal judgment and separation from God into the presence of God for all eternity. Not just to be there, but to be welcomed into his family as a son, as a daughter. the adopted children of God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says it this way. John 11, verses 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What about you? What do you believe? As we prepare to come to the Lord's table and share in the Lord's Supper this morning, to take the bread and the cup and remember Christ's body that was broken, his blood that was shed to pay for our sins, let us come with full, full of hope, right? Full of hope, full of faith in Jesus our King, right? Knowing that he, just as certainly as he lived and died and rose, again, he is returning once more to renew and restore all things, to make all the sad things come untrue. Believers, you're invited to come forward as we continue to sing here in just a moment, to share in this meal by breaking off a piece of the bread, dipping it in the cup. We offer both juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine or string. If you're not a believer in Christ, this is a meal that's reserved for Christians. Again, you don't want a symbol of something. You want the real thing. This is an opportunity as as Christians are sharing in this this meal to take Christ in faith, to take the risen Savior in faith. There will be pastors and prayer responders out here at the gym. We'd love to visit with you. We'd love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. But as we fix our eyes on the cross and the empty tomb, may the truth of the resurrection change your mind and your heart and transform your life to live for Christ in his glory in every way possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time uh, to be gathered together to celebrate that, that, that the son you sent for us, the son you gave up for us, who lived the perfect life we never could, who died the death that we deserve, he is risen, he is alive, he is victorious. Lord, by faith you allow us to share in that victory. We pray by your spirit that you'd move those in this room today, even those who came in with doubts, even those who are leaving with doubts. Would you help them to see the the reality, the overwhelming evidence of the truth of of who Christ is and what he's done for them. Lord, would you move people who don't know Christ this morning to put their hope in Jesus, to, to feel the hope that he brings for it to be real in their life. Because he is real. And he is alive. Lord for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for some time. Lord help us to not, not get, get, get just kind of weary with this. To think it's just the, the mundane details. Oh yeah he's lived and he died and he rose. No, that's everything Lord. Help us to see the wonder of Christ's life for us. His death for us. And his glorious resurrection for us. To feel the weight of the hope that that brings. That outweighs, out outdoes, outdoes any sin in our life. Anything we have done. Lord, help us to rest in grace. Help us to be renewed by grace. Help us to cling to that hope. And not just sit idly by, but join in the mission of Jesus. That he's given to us. To be a part of taking his redemption to the world around us. Lord, would you use us, would you use the gifts that you've given us. For your glory. For the good of many people.